Hey folks, Gavin Roth here with another episode of the Influencers of Sponsorship Marketing, sponsored by Elevant, makers of sponsorship software that track, evaluate, and manage all requests for partnerships. Learn more at elevant.co. Nick Salsky is not short on passion, enthusiasm, and opinion. He also knows the iGaming space as well as anyone, anywhere. Combine those two and you can see why PointsBet, an Australian-owned sportsbook operator, tapped Nick to lead their sales and marketing efforts in Canada. You see, PointsBet entered the Ontario sportsbook waters at a disadvantage to their rivals when the government opened the coveted Ontario market to licensed and regulated operators on April 4th of this year. Their pockets weren't as deep, and they didn't have an existing database to convert to paying betters. So Nick and his team had to be crafty. A couple of pillars they leaned on heavily were sponsorships and influencer marketing, quickly snapping up deals with Curling Canada, Alpine Canada, the Trailer Park Boys, the NHL Alumni Association, and most recently, MLSE. All part of Nick's strategy to build a brand wrapped in the Canadian flag. In our chat, Nick shares that strategy and his views on the Ontario sports betting market. We also stepped back and revisited his time as president of the popular disruptor daily fantasy brand, Monkey Knife Fight, a brand that in two and a half short years got snapped up by Bally's for $90 million. The sports betting business in Canada has never been hotter, and Nick is the perfect guest to discuss it with. Some terrific insights, fun stories, and even an explanation of how one can be both a Habs fan and a Leafs fan at the same time. I hope you enjoy. And for more episodes of the Influencers of Sponsorship Marketing, follow me on LinkedIn, visit Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or check out RothRevenue.com. Thank you uh, so much for doing this. I know how busy uh, this is, this this time is, and how busy you are, and I appreciate you carving out some time for me. All good, brother. All good. I'm looking forward to it. Good, good. So uh, for those who don't know, and maybe those they've been hiding under a rock, um, April 4, uh, the uh, Ontario market uh, opened up and, and is now a regulated and licensed iGaming market. Let's not forget, everybody's talking sports betting, but online casino operators and most operators have, have both. Um, are now live and operating in a legal, regulated, licensed uh, fashion. And I'm lucky enough to be uh, connected to the world of sports uh, sponsorship and sports betting, the business of sports betting. So I follow it. And I can't think of a brand and an executive that I've noticed more than PointsBet and Nick Salsky. Like, um, so again, you know, appreciate you carving out time. How has this, how has it been leading up to April 4th and this last, what, almost month now, uh, post? 23 days. My goodness, right, Gavin? Uh, you know, it's been, in, it's been insane. It's been intense. Um, I'll, I'll say, you know, it, it, it started off a tad frustrating because we had hoped um, that the market was going to open first date that we heard was December 6th, right, of last year. And I started with PointsBet June, June 8th. 
Um, and so we built a lot of our early partnerships and a lot of our early strategies around um, December 6th. Now, pushing to April 4th, um, it, uh, that was a bit frustrating. Um, you know, and we can talk about the specific impacts that had on some of our partnership strategy in a little bit. But I mean, since we launched, it's been it's been it's been intense, right? I mean, there's no other word there's no other word for it. Um, I mean, the 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 interesting thing or the 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 masochistic thing about this last three weeks is I'm a I'm a glutton for punishment. This is the this is the third time, fourth time I've launched. Um, a new kind of gaming brand. And so I, I kind of knew what was coming. Um, but when you're working alongside uh, an amazing team uh, that hasn't necessarily had the exact same experiences, um, let's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more uh, challenging just mm -hmm. in managing everybody's expectations and managing everybody's adrenaline and managing everybody's yeah there's sleep. a different cadence right to how uh -huh. everybody is used to operating yeah. yeah like we have some incredible people on our team a lot of them come from big corporate you know big corporations and you know we have we're now we're up to 52 people oh. in canada um and and uh, you know we're growing steadily i think four really exciting new jobs hit the market today um but that's still a pretty small number of people in the grand scheme of things, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the exciting thing for us is we have an incredible product and incredible platform because, you know, the you know points bet controls its entire tech stack, being one of the only companies in the world that actually or North America that actually has that uh, capability. So from an operator's perspective, from a brand builder's perspective, it's been very exciting to be able to launch without having to worry about a product falling over. Mm. But um, I mean, to be candid, Gavin, I appreciate and I thank you for what you said about the noise that we've been trying to make in the industry. And I think definitely people within the industry are very aware of, uh, or I think are more aware of PointsBet and, and candidly myself as well, probably. But we're the only operator that didn't have a database as of April 4th, like a real database that we could market directly to. So while we did a good job building up our industry credibility from a mass consumer perspective, PointsBet is still pretty much an unknown. So, you know, the last 23 days has really been focused on really introducing ourselves to the Ontario sports fan in a direct way to get them to convert, to get them to actually download, to get them to actually play more than just like signing a, a website asking for them to be notified, which is you and I both know isn't necessarily all that effective. Um, you know, to actually get to drive actual conversion. So yeah, the last 23 days has been, uh, it's, it's, you know, we've learned a lot and we continue to learn every day. And that's, that's really the, the, the that's the only thing that a good a kind of operator and a good company can do on uh, post launch over the first, you know, number of weeks and months is, you know, got to learn, learn and get better, learn and iterate. Good. Right. So, so we'll talk a little bit more in a sec about, what's going on and I, I i want to lean in on that point about you know not having a database and therefore how that might impact your your acquisition strategy and your marketing strategy as a whole um but let's back up you've had such a fascinating career i mean uh i i you know you were a producer i think early on and then you got into this world of fantasy gaming at, at an executive founder, president founder level. 
uh, Monkey Knife Fight, fascinating brand with the best name in the in the business. That gets sold, and and uh, now you find yourself, um, you know, as the chief commercial officer at PointsBet, um, such an exciting brand and and time. So talk about that journey and kind of what what led you to get into the spaces you got into, and to the trouble oh. you got into. Yeah, right. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny that you, you know, it's funny that you, you know, you, you, you preface that, you know, I started as a producer. In fact, I was a producer and I was directing content and I was actually the face of the family channel for a short period of time. Um, and as a producer, I Lord, learned. Lord, Lord help all those families. Eh? Well, it was, yeah. it was, and Lord help all of us because that was pre-YouTube. So that's how old I am. So none of those clips actually exist except on my phone and my computer and in our company Slack. So that's an extra bonus for people who who get hired to PointsBet is they get access to the uh, the the kid puppet shows that I had the great pleasure of hosting as well. That's a that's a nice little fringe benefit. Um, but what I learned when I learned being a producer, when I learned in the uh, what I learned primarily in, in the entertainment business is, you know, the best content is created by producers and directors that actually that actually care. That actually, uh, uh, by the way, is this uh, am I allowed to swear occasionally, or do you like keeping it clean? All right, like I think the key is giving a shit, right? Oh like so, I didn't I think you were going to go that hardcore. Oh my god. Okay. Oh my god, that's a big word, right? Yeah. Like I mean, I I think that. You know, giving a shit is so important when it comes to being able to create content that connects with with people, whether it's kids or adults, it doesn't matter, right? It's that authenticity. I think that's so important. So back when I was I was making television shows, I just, you know, I I played rugby at a pretty high level. Um, obviously, I like to talk and I love sports and I was on television and, and off the record that you remember, you know, the, the one of the biggest, longest running sports talk shows in Canadian sports history. Michael Landsberg, yeah. Hosted by the legend himself, Mr. Michael Landsberg. Um, this was when they had, you know, C and D and E level celebrities on their, on the sports panel show. And I literally remember just emailing the producer, a guy, uh, Bob Makowitz was the producer at the time. And he said, hey, I'm on the family channel. I love sports. Can I come and do your show? And I did the show once and it was, it was super fun. It was actually, and I told this story to uh, I've told the story before, but um, it was the the morning or the day after the Jays' 10th anniversary of their uh, their World Series, and Candy Maldonado was on the the show with me, and I think he was still celebrating, um, or he was still happy from the night of celebrations with his with his ex teammates. So that was my <laughs> a name I haven't heard in a long time, right? Andy. And, and yeah. that was my introduction to the realm of sports television. But ultimately, I started doing off the record all the time. And this is right around I started getting very into fantasy sports and especially fantasy football. And then um, I think it was around 2006, um, 2007. Um, the producer of Off the Record at the time and I were both massive fantasy players and no one had really cracked fantasy content before. And the cool thing about Off the Record was um, they, they shot they shot within a, back then when we when we first started thinking about this, they were down at Dome and they would, you know, they had a, a crew for two hours, OTR would shoot for an hour and the crew would just be there. And in true entrepreneurial uh, fashion, the producer of Off the Record and I, who were both fantasy players, we were like, why don't we pitch, why don't we create a fantasy fantasy show? We can shoot it right here with the same crew. We don't have to pay anything extra. 
and let's let's take a swing. And, and so we mentioned the idea to the TSN executives and they were cool. And then I ended up hosting the fantasy hockey report with Scott Cullen, who anyone in the fantasy sports industry in Canada knows, knows Scotty now writes for The Athletic. Scott was the man of, of TSN fantasy for over a decade. Anyway, so Cullen and I, Scott and I ended up um, hosting the Fantasy Hockey Report, which was the first online fantasy sports show at TSN.ca. Did that for a couple of years. And I started really thinking about how fantasy sports and media could take shape. And, and I enjoyed being a producer and a director, but ultimately I grew up in, in California. Well, I was born in Montreal. I grew up in Los Angeles and I never really wanted to move back there. And the reality is if you want to be a successful, if you want to make a lot of money being a film and television person, the reality is you can you can you can you can carve out a good career for yourself in Canada, but you're never going to make a ton of money. So the decision that I made back in my mid 20s was: Do I want to move to California and take a really big swing of where I did not I did not want to move back to, or do I want to try something else? And that's when the idea of fantasy and media and content kind of all come all started kind of interplaying in my head, and I ended up founding my first startup called InGamer which was uh, we had built a live free-to-play fantasy game. So you could pick five players before the game began, and then you can change your players during the game. And it was a free-to-play license model to broadcasters and sponsors. Um, very early. This was like 2018 or 2009. Like, this was like super early. Um, had a lot of great experience there. Raised some money. Built it. Built the product with my co-founder. Um, licensed it to CBC and Hockey Night in Canada, licensed it to Rogers, worked with all the big media companies. Um, but there was a flaw in the business model that I learned because ultimately you can create the greatest concept of a product on paper. You can convince a media company that ultimately to increase the value of the digital brands, it's going to increase engagement. You know, the same thing with sports betting is learning now and selling is media companies know that if you can create a tool to keep an audience watching games longer, even if the games are boring or a blowout, fantasy, sports gambling, reality is you're going to be able to increase your impressions and value of what you take out the sponsor. So we can make so much sense on paper, but as a startup, what you need is you need revenue to continue, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In order for a media company to truly pay you for your product, they need a free to play product, a product that they're not, you or them are not generating any revenue on, they need to sell that product to a sponsor. That's where the money mm-hmm. comes from. All sponsors care about are eyeballs. So unless you're a startup that has three years of runway where you can literally give a product to media companies for free in order for them to build up eyeballs in a database that build they a can brand. Yeah. To a sponsor and yeah. build a brand, ultimately you're you're gonna, you're gonna run out of yeah you're gonna run that's out right of it's chicken without an egg and you're gonna yeah. run out of runway because sponsors need eyeballs broadcasters need sponsors startups need money well there's a yeah. there's and to get eyeballs you need time exactly and so yeah. i learned i mean that was my first startup lesson and ingamer ultimately didn't didn't you know didn't survive but as we all know and everyone said this a million times you learn the most from your failures than you do from your successes right so i learned very early on at how important business strategy was and business model was, but that brought me into um, the world. This was around the time when daily fantasy sports started really blowing up. This was about 20, you know, 2014. Uh, by the time InGamer was, uh, we had to survive also an NHL lockout. I and mean, if you're a Canadian sports tech startup, 
and your primary Canadian sport goes on lockout, you're yeah. also facing some some headwinds, right? So this was right around the time when daily fantasy sports started growing. Daily fantasy sports being the real money, the real money version of fantasy sports. And just to to frame it, fantasy sports is the biggest social game that's ever been invented. Over 60 million North Americans play fantasy sports every. I'm year. a diehard. I mean, I always that's my one of my favorite vices. I always tell people if you you know you will never hear me turn down an invitation to join a a golf fantasy or a football fantasy or hockey or basketball or baseball, especially as the, yep. the who, you know, I, I remember, you know, it goes back to sitting in friends basements with, with magazines and everything pre internet, right? Uh, it was yep. the original fantasy game. So I'm still at 53. I'm a massive fantasy gamer, but I will admit I never got on the pay to play uh, daily fantasy train, although I followed it with tremendous interest. So, so that's what you're, you, we get to that stage now in what, 14, 15, 2014, 15, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, daily fantasy sports started really exploding around that time. And it was a bit of a, a bit of a wild west, you know, FanDuel and, and DraftKings. DraftKings actually acquired a company called Draft Street. That, and that was very, very early, but FanDuel, there were a number of companies who were, were big movers, but it was very, very wild west back then. Um, and there was a, a regulated horse race company that was, that operated ADW, um, uh, ADW terminals and ADW backend um, uh, betting for casinos across North America. Um, and they were trying to figure out how to leverage their relationships and their databases to um, uh, to leverage the power and the growth of daily fantasy sports in North America. And so they they hired they they found me and recruited and hired me to help them figure out what their daily fantasy sports strategy should be, because they were you know as daily fantasy sports was building and growing. The folks that were not able and were not participating in that from an industry perspective were the regulated casino gaming operators. And the casinos were frustrated around DFS because, you know, if you look at DFS, you think it's as close to sports betting as you can get without crossing the line. Now, that's even before uh, Monkey Knife Fight, where we pushed it as close to the line as we could. But we'll, I, you know, I know we'll, we'll get there in a sec. So... What was interesting was we were trying, they were trying to figure out how to leverage their casino relationships because all of the casinos really wanted to get into daily fantasy sports, but they couldn't because fantasy sports at that point was not regulated. And obviously the most valuable thing for all casino operators is their gaming license. So they could not do anything to jeopardize their gaming license. So I was working through a strategy, which was really interesting, where if we were to find a or acquire a uh, a fantasy platform and turn it into a B2B white label uh, uh, operation where as um, as a as a service provider, we can offer a skin to casinos as a marketing play, a marketing partner. But we as the B2B operator handed all the liquidity, handled all of the operations and the payments, then it would, it would absolve the casino companies from being concerned about their license. They could generate revenues, drive their users there, be a part of the industry without necessarily having any risk. Made a lot of sense. So um, the company um, 
and uh, the company. So I architected a deal between that company and another New York-based marketing company to acquire what was at the time Draft Day. Draft Day was the third or fourth biggest daily fantasy sports company at the time, but they didn't have the money to compete with the FanDuel's and DraftKings. So that time, it I mean, you would in the states you would not be able to turn on a television without seeing a FanDuel or DraftKings ad back in 20, you know, 2014. It was in 20 it was insane. So the the idea was we can't compete or draft day can't compete against the marketing spend. So how do we leverage the technology and the platform and build a new type of business model? And this made a lot of sense. So I architected the deal um, to to acquire Draft Day. Um, we turned it into the Draft Day Gaming Group. We had at that point this was by you know September of 2015 is when the deal um, closed. We had about I want to say nine of the biggest casino operators on the East Coast ready to be a part of our network. Part of the whole acquisition was these folks were keen. Um, so acquired the company in September, uh, renamed it the Draft Day Gaming Group. I became the president of the Draft Day Gaming Group. Um, and um, the deal closed the second week of September. And then the fourth week of September, I shit you not, or the first week of October, um, a DraftKings employee won, a, or sorry, a FanDuel employee won a DraftKings contest. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Ethan Haskell was his name. Um, it became a massive scandal within the daily fantasy sports industry. And I have, it was bullshit, but ultimately we don't need to get into the weeds of why it was really a stupid scandal. But what it resulted in was the New York all Attorney the, General. All the casino time. operators backed away, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so the New York Attorney General, based on this scandal, deemed daily fantasy sports and illegal illegal sports betting, shut off DFS from New York, and then of course all of the casino operators backed Just, away. Yeah. Any so little this, tiny red. That's it. Yeah. So here we go. Is. Startup guy once again. This is a cool deal. Everything worked. This happened completely out of our control. And now all of a sudden we have just bought this business and our entire business model just blew up. And we're sitting there like, <clears throat> well, Jesus, what are we going to do now? Right. Um, and so what we did on, was, on a quick on a quick tangent yeah. there. Yeah, it, it's uh, I've, I've often said you could, uh, you know, one day I, I'll write a book on the the deals that didn't happen right, for the craziest reasons that uh, you can imagine. Like uh, uh, there was one case where uh, we had two, two deals for a massive EV infrastructure project um, in contract stage with lawyers. And the reason it didn't happen is the government changed in Ontario from liberal to PC and all the yeah. EV funding uh, got scrapped and that screwed two multi-million multi-year deals that we had architected and it's just things like that that you 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 kind of know these risks lie out there but they're beyond your control and you have to do your part but then these things fall apart so that's another fascinating story right uh, oh there's there's there yeah, yeah it really i'll assign is. a few chapters to you don't worry <laughs> yeah yeah no i i would be i would be happy to, to to participate my goodness but you know out of that did come some i mean it came there there came a couple good things 
um, you know, forced us to really think about the business model and um, the, <laughs> so the first thing that we did was we started looking, um, you know, we started just talking to everybody, like looking around because we had this model, we weren't going to be able to compete. We had this really cool platform. And at the time, Daily Fantasy Sports was starting to grow. And there was another casino operator based in Australia, Crown, uh, Crown Resorts, that was trying, and, and they had a digital company, a digital betting company called Crown Bet. Um, and they were trying to figure out DFS. And so what we did was we actually partnered with Crown Bet to launch um, an Australian DFS company called Draft Stars. Um, and, and Draft Day Gaming Group powered the platform for Draft Stars to launch, which became the biggest daily fantasy sports company in Australia. So that worked out really well. And, and funny story that the um, Crown Bet and Draft Stars was based in, uh, in Melbourne. Uh, full circle, one of the employees at Draft Stars who, who ran finance for Draft Stars is actually the head of finance for PointsBet. So, you know, there, I, I, I've had and some isn't nice- PointsBet isn't, isn't PointsBet founded in Australia. Founded in Australia. Yeah, yeah correct. Australia, it's funny how over the years you just hear a lot of innovation and entrepreneurial excellence coming from Australia. Yeah, no, it, it's, it, it's, it's, they're, I mean, they're spectacular gaming operators. They're some of the savviest, most mature gaming and bookmakers or gaming there's operators. Something, and there's something the there. And, and I, you know, it's not one of those that's in the water. Like I was born in South Africa, but I've been here forever. So I, but I still have an appreciation. And I think Australia, Australians and South Africans share something similar. We almost ended up moving to Melbourne. Uh, instead, my family chose Toronto. So it's funny how your life would have been so different, but there's a, um, a spirit, a culture of can do, of, of um, you know, just intelligence, um, you know, hard work, can-do spirit uh, that exists in both of those countries. And you see a lot of it. That's why I think you do see a lot of innovation and, and yeah, uh, yeah uh, productivity. No, so, I, I think so, too. And, and, I mean, the reality is Australia is a mature, you know, gambling market. So the innovation and the ex expertise has been able to be fostered there more so candidly than um, you know North America at this point, right? Especially from a sports betting perspective. Um, but the other, so the Draft Stars piece was pretty funny, but the other interesting carrot or the interesting nugget to the Draft Day story is when we acquired Draft Day, one of the deals that I was actually really interested in that they had already crafted was with a deal, um, with, a deal um, with Vivid Entertainment. Now, Vivid Entertainment at the time was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, adult entertainment companies in North America. When you look at the database for- Never heard of it. Exactly. No one ever has. When you think of the database of adults and you think of the database of sports gaming, they line up, right? So I was really interested in that. And at the time, you know, everyone within the organization that acquired Draft Day was aware of the contract because, well, it was- assigned to the company, right? So there was no there was no secret there or anything like that. Um, the, uh, when, um, you know, after we acquired the company, we were working towards launching a white label version of a DFS product for Vivid. Um, um, at the time, um, an article came out 
um, announcing the impending deal between the Draft Day Gaming Group and Vivid. Well, when that article came out, um, it um, it ruffled some feathers with the European Gaming Companies Board, and they asked, forced me to terminate the deal. Um, and so I remember calling the then head of Vivid, a guy by the name of Bill Asher, to say to Bill, Bill, you know, I'm really sorry, but um, we have to terminate the deal. And this is literally three days after the article came out. There was a lot of pressure. Uh, we don't need to get into the details of why they made that decision, but obviously it was very frustrating to me and, and my my boss at the time, the CEO of the Draft Day Gaming Group, because everyone knew that the deal existed, right? So I had to terminate that deal with Bill. And, you know, he took it took it well. I mean, Bill Bill Asher is one of the most successful internet and 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 media entrepreneurs in in history. Um, and you know he's also an incredible businessman, and he, he understood that reality. So fast forward, fast forward about a year. Um, so a year we're we're powering draft stars, and then the initial MSA master services agreement that the European regulated company that I had worked for architected the deal with ran out with Draft Day Gaming Group. So the people that took the the marketing, the New York marketing company that took over ownership for the Draft Day Gaming Group decided that they were no longer interested in keeping that MSA with the European executives alive. Uh, they wanted me to maintain my role as president of the Draft Day Gaming Group, and I agreed. Uh, when that happened, the first call that I made was back to Bill to say, hey, they're gone. What do you think? Why don't we, uh, you know, why don't we resurrect the deal? And he was like, yeah, you know what? You left me all, you left me at the altar once. Why, why would I ever think you're not going to do it again? Right. Completely fair statement. So, you know, over the three months we started talking and kept talking. And then what, what I realized is that Bill and I both shared a very similar perspective for the state of the industry at that point. DraftKings and FanDuel were the last two standing really. Um, they were able to survive the, 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 the industry issues of losing New York State and a bunch of other uh, major states, the pricing of, of, of incoming licensing that state started adopting, it became even more expensive to compete. And at that point also from a user perspective, it became extraordinarily clear that 90, like something like 98% of the money won on DraftKings and FanDuel was won by like 2% of the users. So ultimately it was not an industry that was serving the casual sports fan. And that was a miss. So, you know, Bill and I started talking and realizing that there was a really big product opportunity there. Um, and so we decided that we, um, that we were gonna take a swing. So I decided to leave draft day and partnered with Bill. And um, in, in, in uh, July of 2017, and we started on the path of trying to figure out a way to make daily fantasy sports um, more fun for the casual sports fan. And what we just what we realized was we could create what, what, we, what we called single player fantasy and really lean into kind of player props and some of the things that we like to bet on normally, um, but was a lot easier and like a lot easier to understand. And uh, honestly, a lot easier for the casual sports fan to win because instead of being taken by pro players who are using scripts and math algorithms to win conventional daily fantasy sports contests, there was an opportunity 
to create a new type of daily fantasy sports product that appealed to that casual sports fan. Now, there were a couple challenges, obviously. You know, we needed to um, we needed to get a get the product built. <laughs> we needed to uh, tackle the regulatory hurdles of explaining and getting approval for this new style of daily fantasy sports. And as we started building July of 2017, the first versions of Monkey Night Fight, um, you know, I've had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for now for 13 years. Oh. And then, of course, in September of 2017, as we started the process of Monkey Night Fight, or what would be Monkey Night Fight, I had to go through chemotherapy for the first time. Okay. So here we are building this new company. I'm going through chemo with Bill. And, or not, wait, I wasn't going through chemo with Bill, but I was sending <laughs> Bill pictures I hear you. Uh, every time I was in the chair, because that's just the way way I, I roll. Um, and, you know, also trying to convince regulators and media companies and sports teams that, that the style of single player parlay based fantasy was legal. So because it to I, me, it looked like the as I've leaned in on monkey knife fights and learned a little bit more about it, it, it really mimicked what this, you know, uh, sports betting and single prop sports betting marries fantasy gaming. It, it was the so, closest blend, right? So yeah, that had we, to be a challenge with the regulators. It, it was. Um, let's face it. And it wasn't a free to play, right? It was like you no, dropped it. Was, no. That's right. So, but as we know, innovation and risk is typically where the mass, massive opportunities lay, right? You got to you got to take big swings. And luckily, Bill was an extraordinarily successful uh, media entrepreneur who backstopped the growth. So the reality is um, daily daily fantasy sports uh, or fantasy sports um, back in 2006 after Black Friday, there was something that came out called UGA, which is the Unlawful Internet Enforcement Gaming Act. Or I, I sometimes I forget, UEGIA. Within that legislation, there was a Sounds like a new that, Pokemon game, but go on. Yeah. yeah. No, no, totally. But UGA has been what the fantasy sports industry has been built on, both fantasy and daily fantasy. There is a carve-out within the that legislation that deemed fantasy sports legal and a game of skill. And there were three core um, uh, kind of regulatory mechanisms or, or, or phrases within the legislation that the fantasy industry used to justify its legality. Now, daily fantasy sports emerged, or let me, I'll rephrase. Those regulations within that legislation were crafted before the idea of daily fantasy sports ever existed. FanDuel, DraftKings, DraftStreet, all of the original daily fantasy sports companies interpreted those regulations to satisfy regulators that sparked the evolution of conventional daily fantasy sports. I wondered All about that because when they launched, I was like, how have they gotten around doing this on a paid, you know, upfront pay? And so you've just explained it right with that regulation. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I won't get into the specific kind of nuts and bolts of that, the details, but ultimately all we did at Monkey Knife Fight and then what others who followed us did um, was more aggressively interpret that language. We worked with some of the best lawyers in the in the states, best gaming lawyers in the states. 
Um, and ultimately, we got approval and regulatory sign-off for our version of Daily Fantasy Sports. Um, and so here comes yet another kind of so we launched our first version of Monkey Night Fight in, or the first version of our product in December of 2017, and, and we saw some really exciting metrics. Then we really stepped back, Bill and I, and we were like four people, five people at the time. And then we started thinking, okay, there's something here. And then Bill was like, okay, he had committed a certain amount to test the concept. The concept worked. And then it was like, all right, let's lean in. Then it was, okay, what's, what's the brand? Like, what do we, let, let's create something fun and cool. And that's when the whole branding exercise took off. And, and re, in the reality is, you know, um, the way that Bill, who owns a slew of bars and restaurants in the Western United States, the way that he likes to um, name bars is he sits down with the bar manager or his partner with a bottle of scotch and they brainstorm ideas. Well, Bill's in California and I'm in, I'm in Toronto. So we got together over Skype had some tequila and uh, threw out some names the next morning. Um, and Bill and I are both Simpsons fans. And the next morning looked down at my phone and his monkey night fight name Love was it. there. And we were just like monkey night fight. Anyway, monkey night fight was one of the names we threw the, the, the three that we liked over to an incredible design company in San Francisco who became our, our marketing agency called Cooper Levy partners. I will shout them out. Uh, Neil mm. Levy and Zane Cooper are just geniuses. Anyway, they put together a, a, a lookbook of a bunch of the logos, but we saw Monkey Knife Fight. We were like, okay, we're Monkey Knife And culturally, so, just borrowing on what your user base would, would I'm sure, a heavy composition of, of Simpsons lovers too, right? So well, it, it just and all is brilliant. And it, and it brilliant. stands out. I mean, in a sea of sameness, Right, yeah. in a sea of sameness, you know. DraftKings, um, FanDuel, and then you've got Monkey Knife Fight. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, and picks and prize and all this stuff. So glad you gave the origin story because that that was something I definitely wanted on that. And yeah. and a great brainstorming tactic. I've participated in many brainstorms led by professionals and how they'll throw toys on the table and and this whole you know, belief and, and learning. And it's, it's proven that if you're, if you're fidgeting with stuff and playing with things or moving, you're more likely to be more creative and retain. Uh, but Hey, a bottle of tequila kind of does the same thing, doesn't it? Well, and it, it, it does. <laughs> and then, you know, really, really holding true to kind of an irreverent brand focus. I mean, you know, I make the joke a lot, you know, to people, around you know why i decided to leave monkey knife fight and what got me excited about joining points bet and one of the things that i really i say a lot is you know the ability to launch and build a distinctive new brand in canada is something i was always i've always wanted to do and you know changing or or or, or moving away from the irreverency and the knives and monkeys to authenticity and the maple leaf I mean, it, it's, it's, it correlates directly into how we're trying, how we're thinking about market. Because when we were building, launching and building Monkey Knife Fight, we were competing against massive behemoths, right? How do you get your name out there? How do you get people to notice you? How do you create partnerships with important brands and teams so, you know, to, 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 to help amplify your message and to create a level of trust with their audiences. Um, 
And, you know, monkey knife fight started really, I mean, we, monkey knife fight really started taking off as we started leaning into team partnerships, right. You know, as um, you know, in the spring of 2019, as COVID first started descending and stadiums were being shut down and there was an opportunity, you know, there's always opportunity if you're willing to take a risk when everybody else was scaling back the spring of 2019 from a, from an activations and a, and a, and a, and a, and a sponsorship perspective, because there was no fans in games. There was a lot of uncertainty around what was going to happen. Well, Bill, God love him. You're talking 20, you you must be talking 20, right? Not 19. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. yes. Spring of 2020, I I, I apologize. I was going to say, man, you were an early adopter of COVID. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, spring of 2020, and and Monkey Knife had grown really handily um, over, over the first year, but then spring of 2020 hits, and we were just like, oh, my goodness. Um, I remember the day the basketball season was shut down was literally the first day of the first vacation I had had in four years. And I was in, I was flying the next day to Puerto Vallarta with my family and to Mexico. And the NBA season had shut down. Bill, we were, I was like, great timing for a freaking vacation, right? But literally, it was during that week, and we're you know slacking each other because I'm addicted to slack. And the decision was made primarily because Bill was willing to take the risk. He's like, we both knew everyone else was going to scale back. We were like, this is an opportunity. If we scale, if we scale up right now, if we start being aggressive and trying to spend money right now when others aren't, there's an opportunity. So we were able to start crafting partnerships with professional teams, our first being the Milwaukee Brewers, and, and creating really cool um, community-based campaigns. We did a deal with the Buccaneers the Miami Dolphins, uh, with the LA Kings and the Galaxy with AEG, um, then people really started taking Monkey Night Fight serious. And then then the, the, the rock really started rolling and rolling. And by the time the football season started in 2020, you know, the numbers were, the numbers were great. And that's when Bill and I decided, okay, you know what? As much as Bill was, um, you know, a, a wealthy entrepreneur, I mean, ultimately – Folks like Bill don't ever like to be the only one spending money. And the reality is when you're dealing with a growth business, you have to continue to spend money, right? If you want to continue to grow. So the yeah, idea we was, talked well, let's about go that earlier. Some, yeah. Yeah. So the idea was let's go out and raise some outside capital. And as we were, you know, doing the road shows and, and raising, you know, trying to raise a bunch of money to throw even more gas on the fire, um, you know, the opportunity to be acquired by Bally um, you know, was, was put on the table and I mean, it was just an incredible opportunity. And, and so, yeah, as we talked about monkey knife fight technically launched, uh, September of 2018 and then was sold in January of 2021, literally two and a half years after launching for $90 million. Um, you know, it was a pretty, pretty great, pretty great success story. And, you know, I was just so honored to be a part of that ride with Bill and the incredible to by the time. Here, here, here's a here's a couple little funny stories about Monkey Knife Fight. Um, so we started, Bill and I, as I alluded to, we met or we started working together officially July of 2017. We only met face-to-face for the first time October of 2019 at G2E. First time we ever met face-to-face. He had put in millions and millions of dollars we had never met face-to-face. By the time Monkey Knife Fight sold, we were 47 people, 49 people. I'd only met seven of them face-to-face. We had built this company primarily over Slack and remote. So, you know, we talk about COVID and the changing of work habits. Well, that 
also was a benefit for how we had built the company because we didn't miss a beat because we were so used to it. So, I've talk, and I've talked about that often over these last couple of years that it is a mindset challenge, but those who can embrace this, you know, the natural you hear from people who maybe lean a little bit to the pessimistic side of the scale is, oh, it's been hard and, you know, we, we don't see people in person and, and, but then you go to the other end of the scale and you, you, you can, if you embrace it, I've met with more people virtually than I would ever meet in person. I've had more meetings, um, more, more, you know, there's just less barriers, right? And business therefore has been moving at a quick pace. And you just, what you said is exactly that. The pace at which you can move is much quicker, right? Well, so, talent, hey, why not? Talent, and the talent that you can acquire, because now when you can look for the best people, not just the people, not just the best people that happen to live within your office area, you know, that, that's also, yes, it's Point. great to be face-to-face, -face, but right. the reality is- But there are there's silver linings to anything, right? Yeah. I, I agree. I yeah. totally agree. So, so yeah, so that was- So you guys uh, sold Monkey Knight Fight, and and uh, uh, one thing I was curious about is you said you you structured these before we moved to points bet. Uh, yeah. You structured these B2B partnerships in the wake of, you know, the pandemic. Were they using, were the brewers, were the bucks- using uh, the platform to engage fans as a means of connecting, staying connected with their fan base virtually during a lot pandemic or because they were using it at the beginning when there weren't fans in stadiums yeah, or was it I mean, set up for when fans did return? No, it was, I mean, it was, it, I mean, Monkey Knife Fight was always just a direct B2C company. So, we never operated or powered any programs necessarily with the teams, but we would create some free-to-play activities for the teams to market to get people to then go and do a similar game within Monkey Knife Fight. Gotcha. But it was really a brand-building mechanism because what we realized is ultimately you need, you need eyeballs, right? You need eyeballs to be able to build scale, and partnering with teams gave us access to not only their fan base, but to... Uh, broadcast visible signage to activation opportunities that candidly we weren't um, able to lean into without those partnerships, leaning into their social and their digital marketing machines. And I mean, you, you need to you need to spend to get customers comfortable. With got it. So you were you were effectively sponsoring those teams to yeah, drive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, got 100%. it, got it. Yeah, Build your exactly. brand, got it. I was thinking more of the B, a B2B partnership, but, and it is sponsorship at its heart is a B2B partnership, but your strategy was a B2C um, play. Um, totally. So, so let's, let's focus on points bet. So you get here um, and, and, and on that topic, right? So you really embrace the idea of, of sponsorship as a means of driving awareness, acquisition, uh, uh, fan engagement, um, you know, as chief commercial officer, what is your, before you talk about how you've uh, utilized sponsorship, uh, that's what this podcast is, is generally focused on, but what is the official mandate as chief commercial officer? Because I've, I've had that title before. It's, it's, it's sales and marketing when I've had it, but not every CCO is defined the same. So what, what is your mandate at, at points, Beth? 
<laughs> my my mandate. That's a good one. Um, I think it's it's uh, it's really building, helping to build the brand, but ultimately it's about driving as many customers into our funnel as humanly possible, right? And that involves both commercial partnerships, um, uh, sponsorship, marketing, um, and and you know activations. I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I'm also an operator, um, so. You know, the interesting part about the fact that I was operating Monkey Knife from Canada is when Bill C-218 started coming to fruition, it just so happened that I'm one of the only operators, if the only operator um, in Canada that has only operated in the regulated framework. There are a number of folks who have operated in the gray or the unregulated market, but I happen to be one of the only regulated game, real money gaming operators in the country. So... As Bill C-218 started coming to fruition, uh, the opportunity to build something really cool in Canada was, was super exciting. And, you know, so as far as a mandate goes, I mean, because I have a lot of direct operational experience, um, you know, I try and participate and help our team as much as possible in any way I can, because sure. I do have a lot of real world experience. I mean, ultimately now we're 52 people, I believe. We have an incredible team. Um, you know, but ultimately our, our, my mandate is, you know, really trying to figure out how to create, get as many customers as possible. I mean, at the yeah. end of the day, you know, it's about making money. You can't make money without customers and depositing customers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the biggest challenge that PointsBet has, I mean, there's a lot of challenges, you know, based on the market and how it's evolving is one, you know, the biggest one is when, when the market opened officially on April 4th, we're the only operator that did not have a database. We didn't have one. Every other company that launched either either had been servicing the gray market, so they had a database of Ontario sports betters that were gambling in the unregulated framework, or there are companies who have databases from pre-existing businesses. As an example, you know they have daily fantasy sports companies or uh, databases. They have casino reward business databases. And, and, and so, you know, the challenge that we had was how are we going to introduce the points bet brand to the Ontario sports fan in a way that could break through the noise that we knew was going to exist? Because unlike U.S. states when they launch, um, one, the, the market was preceded with massive sports gambling databases because of the gray market, like I, like I mentioned. Um, but also there was going to be significantly more operators um, launching than pretty much in any other state that launches. So the amount of noise that was going to exist within the market was going to be significant. And the Ontario sports gamblers also very mature because of the pre-existing gray market, right? So we knew it was going to be extraordinarily challenging. And yes, you know, the other reality is PointsBet does not necessarily have the pocketbooks as a lot of the other major European and, and, and US-based sports gaming companies. So we can't just outspend folks. We can't, um, you know, we, I, I've, I've said this a lot, we have to outthink them, we can't outspend them. And so, you know, the idea around partnership was one, to figure out 
pathways to databases and sports fans that we could be introduced to in an authentic way that could bring a level of integrity and trust um, to us uh, to complement a brand story that we were going to build and that we are building. Um, and, and the lane that we have really decided to dive into was authentically Canadian. You know, the one thing about the Canadian, I mean, there's lots of things about the Canadian sports fan, but, you know, being Canadian, we know how unique we are to the rest of the world. Um, a lot of sports gambling operators don't truly understand how unique a Canadian sports fan is from coast to coast or how unique a Canadian sports fan is from Niagara to Ottawa. There are, you know, all along and up to Thunder Bay and, and, and Egley, right, and Dryden, like, I, I would challenge a number of sports betting operators to even name a number of Northern Ontario cities. And I just named three. That was very impressive, so, by the way. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Without even naming Timmins, uh, the home of Shania Twain, of course. So, you know, um, I hope I got that right. I think I did. Um, did. So ultimately, authentic boots on the ground understanding of this market, I think we think will resonate, but it takes time, right? So in partnerships takes time and a lot of the partnerships, because we started getting, we started going early. A lot of the partnerships that we created were also predicated on December 6th being the launch, not April 4th being the launch, you know, prime being curling. The very first call I made after agreeing to join points back Canada was to Kathy Anderson, who's the CEO of curling Canada, 35% of Canadian sports fans watch curling. And yet there isn't a lot of gambling markets based around curling. So to me, I see that as opportunity. Um, they're going to be an incredible partner. partner. It's a long-term relationship. But um, the sports betting market in Ontario launched after the Briar. We, we missed the Scotties. We missed the Briar. We missed the, you know, the, the Olympic trials. Like, that's significant, right? So... You know, these are things that when you're leading into partnerships and an uncertainty around when you're going to be able to activate those partnerships, you know, those are things you need to you, you, you need to be aware of. And, and ultimately, I would still do that deal. I think it's going to be an incredible partnership. But I feel like partnerships, if you're going to lean into partnerships, you really are running a marathon, not a sprint, because it takes time. And the and the best partnerships um, have to be a two way conversation, right? The best partnerships, I don't know, we'll use curling as the example. I don't know the curling audience nearly as well as Curling Canada understands the curling audience. So we have to work together to figure out tactics that are going to work to authentically convert those users and to do it in a way that they feel like they're not just being sold to, right? But conversely, you know, you go from Curling Canada to our latest biggest partnership, which is obviously Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. And now being the official partner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, being the official partner of the Toronto Raptors, especially during playoff period. And then, of course, the Argos and TFC, when Insignia, especially when Insignia comes. And then, you know, we have the Marlies and, 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 and on a five. You know, I think that you, you, now all of a sudden being the official partner of those incredible brands and that incredible franchise, you know, I think will be a very, it will be a, a bit of a different type of, partnership activation strategy than we have with, you know, the curling Canada's of the world or the daily face-offs of the world that, you know, the NHL alumni association, which is a really exciting partnership that we have as I well. That's so that's a great one. Yeah. 
you know, the the yeah. the the whole, you know, former players and and authenticity just fits so well. You can just see these these guys, you know, playing golf um, and and laying some bets as they're going and and you know they can do it in an unencumbered way because they're no longer active and playing, uh, which is interesting to see how you know BetMGM will leverage. Connor and Bet99, it's it's it seems very very kind of benign, right? Whereas with these these stars, these legends, you can really do some meaningful activation. So I'm I'm eager to hear what you guys have up your sleeve uh, when you're ready to share it um, uh, with the NHL Alumni Association. Well, you gotta. I think we gave everybody a taste of what we're going to do on Market Launch Weekend when we. We had over 20 alumni uh, in, you know, we sent them out customized points bet gear, incredible jerseys. And we did a bit of a social media takeover with, you know, folks like Shane Corson and Darcy Tucker and, and God, Ron Duguay. Oh my goodness. He put out a, <laughs> an unbob video that was just spectacular. Um, and, and it's, and to your point, it's about authenticity and it's, you know, I'm very reluctant into uh, or not reluctant, you know, the idea of leveraging active players around sports betting, I, I do think there is, it, it, it's confusing. And you can never get a Connor McDavid um, saying, I'm going to bet on the Oilers tonight. But can you get, um, but can you get Rick Vive saying, I'm going to bet on the Leafs tonight? Well, yeah. And is that genuine, right? And, you know, the other piece to the alumni that I really love, as you mentioned, you know, Wayne Gretzky and Bad and Jim, um, I kind of like the idea of, partnering with the Wayne Gretzky's in every small town across Canada. Cause you and I both know that in every small town across Canada, if there's an NHL that local hero. Guy, yeah, that's right. And, you know, and it's going to take time and, you know, we're, but we're testing and we're, we're trying to figure it out. We have a, I think we're, we're working on a really cool alumni activation around the beginning of the playoffs, which uh, obviously I'll let you guys know about as, as we're ready to go. But no, so far they've been incredible partners, and I will say, Glenn Healy is uh, is a is a pure treat to to be able to be oh, on calls with. Good, good, to good to hear. Um, talk about uh, so that MLSE deal. So um, obviously gets a ton of the the news, but I know you've also you've done your curling deal. You've, you're with Alpine. Um, you've got the Trailer Park Boys. Uh, you've mm-hmm. really kind of touched a, a lot of Canadiana, right? And I read something that that resonated, that you're launching a brand wrapped in the Canadian flag, right? And I think I that's how you phrased it. And 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 I've seen that executed with with perfection in your partnership strategy, even with your influencers like the Trailer Park Boys. But but everybody's gonna focus on MLSC deal. So you're you're not the exclusive uh, because FanDuel's there as well, and they've got OLG. How are you able to carve out your your niches, or is it just okay to say they've got such a big fan base, the country's so big? Um, if we all did the same thing, we we will pick off our share of the market. But you know, I imagine you're all going to look to do something a little unique, right? How do you think about that? operating in this oh. non-exclusive way. I think about it a lot. Um, I mean, <laughs> the reality is we're, we're 14 or 15 days um, into our partnership with MLSE. 15 days, right? Everything is just happening so quickly for us. 
Um, the reality is we are a challenger brand, right? And the MLSE deal, I think, caught some people by surprise for us because it was a little bit off that kind of uh, outsider Go for value strategy. play, yeah, yeah, outsider, yeah. Yeah, playing, you know, playing, you know, like, you know. Because you said you don't have to the pockets. Well, an MLSC deal is not going to come cheap, so. No, exactly. And, and but I think that the opportunity to partner with the only North American sports franchise owner that literally has 365 days of live events was an opportunity when it started becoming feasible that we had to really look at. And, you know, our goal is to wake up every morning, look in the mirror, and really remind ourselves who we are. We are a challenger brand. If we can take that same underdog challenger mentality and then look to activate creatively alongside the premium partnership of an MLSC, not to mention all of our other partners, and also figure out how we could leverage MLSE with our other partners and vice versa, um, and do it in a creative way that can stand out because we are boots on the ground. We are here. We do understand the market. We are playing the long game and we do have the best product in, in the sports gaming, um, in the, in, in the sports gaming ecosystem as far as I am biased, but, um, I do believe that our product does stand up against anybody's. I think it'll provide us with a really great launch point. And let's face it, when it comes to MLSC, if you want to introduce your brand to a fan base in a way that signifies integrity and trust, that's a great partner to have within the Ontario sports market. I think that um, being one of the two operators that can say the official partner of the Toronto Maple Leafs is, and Raptors and, every, and everybody else, is a great advantage for us. Um, and if we can maintain the innovation and the creative authenticity that we've really tried to focus in on, um, now all of a sudden we have a tool or a weapon in our disposal that has a little bit more spread or oomph, right? So, you know, it's it's a work in progress. We think about it every day, every moment. How do we how do we do it? But to your point, it's how do we marry the Trailer Park Boys, MLSD, the alumni, Daily Faceoff, Alpine Canada, Curling Canada. How do we how do we fuse all of these things together? Um, because we are building a unique type of brand that mm -hmm. is backstopped by a exciting product. I believe product is going to win this market. Product well, that's it. That's what I'm thinking as you're right. saying it is, is, is you let the products speak for itself. You, you now have a, through these partnerships, a forum to introduce your product in a meaningful way to their fans and let the best product win. Right. And, and the yeah. innovation and all the twists and all the, 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 the nuances in, inside the app, let that convert people. Well, hit the nail on the head and let's face it the market is 23 days old we all knew that in the early days of the market there's going to be a even though the agco's marketing regulations uh prohibit inducements we know we knew that the early stages of the market were going to be defined by all of the free money that was being thrown around we can't compete 
with all of that free money. Um, what we focused on in the early days is cultivating the most, cultivating quality users. And what I will say is what we're seeing is that the users that come to PointsBet, they're staying. And what we're seeing is when users first understand the breadth of our markets and how exciting being able to make your own bet, like users can literally create their own bet, send it into us because we have our own internal trading team. We will grade it for them and we'll push it out and let them bet on it. Um, we're the only company that has live same game parlay during NBA games. So being able to create a same game parlay into the second half during a Raptors playoff game, I mean, that is so fun in live betting. We are faster than any other operator out there. We have more markets than any other operator out there. So what we're seeing is when users are coming in, they're depositing a high amount of money and they're playing a lot. Now, obviously, every operator, not just PointsBet, is looking at how do we increase our top of funnel. For PointsBet, it's especially challenging because we don't have that those preceded databases where we can just hammer emails out to hundreds of thousands of people. We So, you know, ultimately our growth is going to be a little bit slower than than some of the other operators most likely because it's going to take us more time to cultivate that database but i believe and i'm uncertain whether or not the agco is going to release or igo sorry is going to release ngr net gaming revenue results on top of probably what they're going to focus on which is ggr which is gross gaming revenue I believe that if NGR is pitted operator by operator, we'll be in a very favorable position. But that's not my decision to make. Right now, what we're trying to figure out is how to leverage all of our partnerships to increase top of funnel. And then how do we convert them down through the funnel to maintain the same level of quality that we're seeing from the users that we've been able to uh, acquire over the first 23 days. And I, you know, I keep saying 23 days, but I mean, the reality is this really is a marathon and, you know, it's, it's, it's been a, you know, it's, it's been a challenge, uh, an exciting challenge, but man, every day, new opportunities and new things kind of spark up, right? Well, it comes back to your earlier comment comments and we'll, 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 we'll kind of, we're, we're in the home stretch here. A couple more questions, but, but it goes sure. back to your, question your your comments earlier about you need um, funding to allow yourself the time uh, and the runway uh, to to make a business building a brand work and so I, I clearly sense that you know you've got that you've got the long-term partnerships and I've often said as we've done our weekly Twitter uh, chats that you've participated in many of them, Let's see where we are on April 4, 2023 or April 4, 2024, right? Let's see what the market looks like in a year, in two years, uh, because it is, it's a, it's a marathon. Um, so, and, and that database challenge, I imagine, obviously, and maybe it goes without saying, but to, to the listeners, um, you know, the, 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 the Roth Revenue Nation out there, you know, it's basically Rogan, Oprah, and me, right? As you know. Um, well, that's, uh, what, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I I knew you were going to say it. I'll take it off. Uh, is is um, connecting with the fans of those properties, Curling Canada's database, MLSE's database, Alpine Canada's database, 
um, you're in it castle regulated ways, you're able to kind of siphon off and, and, and piggyback on those databases to get your message to people. Is that fair? The Alumni Association. It is fair. It is fair, but um, because of, and the AGCO's marketing regulations, which have evolved um, over the last, you know, eight months since we knew the market, or six months since we knew the market was going to open, you know, the AGCO's regulations specify that a user needs to provide, or uh, a consumer needs to provide express consent to receive any type of uh, inducements from an operator. So while our partners have significant databases, the challenge that has been put forward to us, which candidly makes the partnership strategy a little bit more complicated. It's not like a partner can just send out a mass email saying, no. sign up with our partner PointsBet today and get a free offer, right? We, we can't say that. So we need to figure out ways to help partners send out messaging to their databases to first get those databases to say, yes, I do want Correct. to get marketing messages from PointsBet. So that is a layer of complexity, which candidly is going to bring down the conversion percentage. I mean, that's just the sure. more clicks you need to That's just multi-step, right? Yeah, you've got to go through exactly. multiple steps, so, which will just kind of distill it. Yeah. yeah. So candidly, that that was a, a new challenge that we didn't think we were going to be faced with when we started thinking about the mass partnership strategy. But when you're battling for database, when you're battling for awareness, there are only there are, there's a finite path, there are a finite number of paths to do that. And because you know we're not going to have the marketing budget to bombard sports television ads or bombard sports media networks or television ads. Not to mention the noise, you know, how many ads we're seeing and, and how to break through. We have to be more creative and we have to be more authentic. And, you know, I, I do believe that the true power of the sponsor and partnership plan that we have uh, launched is going to be more realized um, as time evolves because it can give us that understanding of how best to activate each partner because each partner is different, right? Yeah. So. I, I, I'd love to be able to send out a mass email to every single member within all of our partnership databases and say, here is something. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, an I, inducement. I, no, but but at least podcast, right? <laughs> but at least but at least yeah. what you can do is 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 they can get an email message from yeah. from the property and and it it won't have all your competitors in it. It might have you know, they might they, they they can just introduce them via email marketing, which is still very effective uh, to the points bet brand. Yeah. And and exactly. let let the process take off from there. Good. Exactly. Um, you hit the nail right so, on the head. so let's uh, get you out on this. Um, you know, professional development advice. You've said a lot of great things in here that that thematically, um, you know, about taking swings, right? Of learning uh, as you go. What is what are some of the, you know, aside from those, what are some of the lessons learned or advice you would give pay forward to those who want to be the next Nick Salski and have a, a great huh. career in in in, uh, in, uh, in 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 such a fascinating industry? Um, what served you well? Yeah, I mean, so I, I am going to swear here. Uh, I'll, I'll use I'll use a. a, a 
a, a, a more relevant word. Like my, and maybe this is because I, I fought cancer or I'm still fighting cancer. Maybe it's because I was a, a nerd in high school and I wasn't really socially aware until I got to university. Um, and then I broke out of my shell. Um, I give zero fucks. Like, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care. Um, I, 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 I don't sweat things. Um, I, I don't let the word no um, really negatively impact me. Um, I care a lot about everything, but I, I realize that if you don't put yourself out there, um, the opportunities you have are diminished, right? I'm very much an if you don't ask, don't get kind of guy. And the reality is if you are scared of the word no, don't don't be an entrepreneur. Don't try and take big swings because um, you get no and you fail so many more times than you succeed, right? Or, or you get the yes, right? Yeah, you um, miss 100% you know, of the shots you don't take, right? There you go, yeah. Wayne Gretzky right there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I, I, I truly believe that you know, you need to be comfortable enough to um, put out opinions, put out concepts, put out ideas that, you know, people might say, wow, that I don't like that. That doesn't make sense. But within um, within all of that, you know, I, I try and be completely and brutally honest and blunt with every conversation I have with internal people, with teammates, with partners. When I negotiate deals, you know, and, and this isn't just lip service. I, I literally put all the cards on the table. I tell people, this is, this is the exact situation that I'm in. This is what I'm trying to solve. This is what I think you want from us. Let's figure out a way to make it work because this is the type of partner that, that we um, mm -hmm. are going to be. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to come up with a lot of ideas. We're going to want to really push the envelope and innovate because ultimately – I've never worked for a big brand. I've never worked for a huge corporate company that candidly can afford to be a little bit lazy, right? I've never been lazy. Um, I can't be lazy. I can't rest on laurels because I've been a challenger brand guy my entire career. And because of that, I think it's forced me just to be aggressive, just to say what comes out of my, or to say what comes to my mind out of my mouth without a lot of filter because I think that's the best way, one, you can get your message across in an authentic way that yeah. resonates. And then it saves time because if there's somebody that's you have it. a conversation with after you express yourself and they say, I don't like that, it's like, great. I've just saved eight hours in three weeks of thought, right? Like, mm -hmm. fuck it. Like, either we're going to do something together or we're not. And if we're going to do it, let's do it. If we're not, that's cool. Let's still be friends, right? Yeah, um, yeah. that's but, great. You know, that's, yeah. No, no, that's it's it's there's so much in there that that I love and um, and and value and and embody as well as much a, you're 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 much more you know your your nature is 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 much more out there and 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 aggressive but um, but just this this you can get you can embody those principles in different ways um, I'm a big believer in just no games just tell be 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 straight pull back the curtain it builds a spirit of of trust uh, a spirit of of transparency a spirit of partnership no games here uh, you know uh, believe me or not here's there's no agenda 
right? And and I think it just it takes the 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 tension out, right? And uh, and and more and more people need to embrace that style of negotiating and discussing because the games and the hidden agendas, I mean, that will just slow this process down to a a grind, right? And who needs that? Who has time for that? So I think it's wonderful advice. Um, and listen, dude, um, amazing. Like, thank you so much for taking the time and the insights have been wonderful. And and we will continue to follow with interest as PointsBet, as you say, builds this brand wrapped in the Canadian flag. I'm sure you're hoping for a long run from the Leafs, which is a little conflicting for you as a, I believe, a diehard Habs fan. Like, how do you reconcile that? And, and don't forget the Raptors. Um, yeah. But... Well, listen, I'm a diehard. That's my team, the Raps, okay? So nobody will be happier if they come back and shock the Sixers, which could happen, but but I'm 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 gonna be tempered on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as far as the Leafs go, Gavin, I've lived in Toronto for twenty two years. And yes, I was born in Montreal. I grew up in Los Angeles, back in Montreal for high school. The reality is candidly. There is no reason for a Montreal Habs fan from my generation to hate the Leafs. When I was growing up, we were not in the same division. We were not in the same conference. We never had a rivalry. There's only one reason why Habs fans or uh, Montrealers hate the Leafs, hate with with quotations, or two things. One is the Montreal-Toronto rivalry, just from a kind of geopolitical reason. But it goes back to the hockey sweater, the very famous kids book. That, I believe, is the reason why our, like, my parents, our parents' generation, and, and that's the only reason why my generation would hate the Leafs, because we grew up reading the hockey sweater as we were a kid. I, I love the Habs, but I love the Leafs, too. I'm allowed yeah. to love both teams, and I am really excited. Two things can be true, playoffs, yes. Man. Oh, totally. good, and, good. And you and I both know the energy, the energy in the GTA when the Leafs are in the playoffs is Nothing unmatched better. by many other things. Yeah, right? Yeah. Good. All right, pal. Listen, you're busy, dude. I'll, I'll let you go. But thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Gavin. It's been an honor to be with the Joe Rogan and Oprah of Canada. <laughs>